war is over. And that's part of what Jesus came to proclaim, you know, as he was uh, here upon the earth and ministry for three and a half years, was basically just to make that announcement, that he was here uh, to declare the favor of God and to declare that because of what he was about to do in going to the cross, that the war was essentially over. And we're going to talk about um, one of those uh, proclamations that uh, God gave as we continue in our series on God's favorite stories. As we've been looking at um, for, and I, I know that you kind of thought I was probably going to wrap up about this, but I love these parables. They're just, they're, they're so good, um, and, and there's just so much to them, and so I'm just going to kind of stick with it until the Spirit says to stop. So um, anyway, uh, how many of you here this morning um, have at one time or another, and, I, and this probably, you know, all of us in this room, you don't need to raise your hand here, but uh, just kind of asking a question that I think I know the answer to, how many of you have heard a story that is so shocking that you kind of just hear it and you're kind of just in a state of disbelief, thinking, really? Honestly? That happened? They did this? I mean, a story where you're kind of just, your mouth is hanging wide open in disbelief. I think all of us have, at times, had those moments where we hear a story about something, whether it's something you know, so terrific or something that's so horrific that again, we just kind of stand there in a state of disbelief. Do you know that when Jesus told many of the parables that we've been talking about here, that many of those parables were shocking to the people who heard them? Do you realize that? Oftentimes, we kind of read the parables, and we go, oh, what a nice little story. Oh, what a lovely little parable. And I've said over and over, I'm going to say it again. If you read parables, and you walk away from that thinking, that was a nice story. That was, that was a lovely story. I'm telling you, you missed it. You didn't get it. The parables were not written to be nice, kind, wonderful stories they were written and Jesus told them in a way where they would be shocking to the people who heard them. When they would hear the parables that Jesus told, they would stand there in a state of disbelief. Their mouths would be hanging wide open. Honestly, did he just say what I thought he just said? Yeah, he did. Wow. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. That's really what the parables were designed to be. Some of them were even considered offensive. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. This was shocking to the people who were hearing Jesus tell this story because you remember who the hero was in the story, a Samaritan. Jews hated, they despised Samaritans. As a matter of fact, as a Jew, if you ever said the word Samaritan, you had to spit because it was an offensive word. Samaritan. <laughs> Sorry that word ever came across my lips. That's how shocking and offensive Samaritans were to Jews because they were half Jew, half Gentile. And pure-blooded Jews didn't like the fact that they intermixed, intermingled. And so they shunned them. And yet Jesus had the audacity as he's talking to a Jewish crowd 
to make one of them, a Samaritan, the hero in the story. All the while casting the Jews who all walked by in a very unfavorable light. It's one of those stories that Jesus told that kind of left the listener, mainly Jewish listeners, with their mouths just hanging open. How dare he? How dare he make them the hero and us the villain? How about the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15? Another parable that was absolutely shocking to the hearers of Jesus' day. Shocking how a son, a Jew, could be so disrespectful to his father. Shocking that he would demand a share of the father's estate while the father was still alive. Unheard of. I mean, it's beyond rude. Shocking that he would leave his father's place and go to a far country. Shocking that he would take the estate of his father and squander it on wild parties and loose living. Shocking, and the most shocking aspect was he comes back and the father embraces and kisses him and even throws a party. Shocking. But perhaps one of the most shocking parables Jesus ever told is the parable we're going to look at today. And it's found in Matthew chapter 22. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. And again, one of the reasons I say I know this was shocking and upsetting to those who heard the story that Jesus told It's because it records their reaction to the story. So before I tell you the story, let me just tell you what their reaction is to the story we're gonna look at, just so again, you kinda get the proper mindset. This was shocking. Verse 15, look at the reaction of the Pharisees. Then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Obviously, Whatever he said really set them off in such a way that they were willing to go and to begin to plan ways to trap him into saying something so they could finally have him arrested and kind of just get on with the process of once and for all getting rid of this thorn in their side. Now again, that's that's a pretty strong reaction to the parable Jesus told. And again, this was pretty common to the parables Jesus said in general. Like I said, if you really like these parables and you just kind of think they're nice stories, chances are very, very good. You don't understand it. You're not getting it. You're missing the point here somewhere. Many of the parables Jesus told were intended to be shocking to those who were listening. We're going to get into another really, really shocking parable next week. The other interesting aspect of this parable Jesus is telling to the story, uh, to the crowds, is, is that he's sharing this story. He's telling this story on a Tuesday. And he knows at this point he is going to go to the cross on Friday, three days later. So here he is on a Tuesday, 
telling a story, knowing in just three days, I'm going to the cross. So this parable is poignant for the time, for the audience, for the circumstances that were about to unfold before them. It was so relevant in that Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross and this parable has so much to do with how God's people have responded to God's wonderful, marvelous invitation in the past, in the present, how people would respond to it in the future as well. Part of what makes this particular parable so relevant for us today as we read this parable, is that we're gonna find out not only was the king's invitation issued to the listeners in Jesus' day, that invitation is also extended to us today. Beginning in verse one, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus also told them other parables. He said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out another slave saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their own way. One to his own farm, another to his business, the rest were seized, uh, and the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Now there's more to the parable, and we're gonna, I'm just gonna kinda tell you a part of the parable, stop, explain, part of the parable, stop, explain, we'll just kinda chop it up a little bit um, this morning. Now this particular part of the story, what makes this so shocking is this is a stinging indictment. I mean, this is a sharp rebuke that Jesus just handed to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, uh, the, the religious authorities that are standing there listening to what Jesus is saying. This particular part of the parable was a huge slap up alongside their head. Because what he is saying is, this has been this nation, this Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, this has been the response, the rejection, and the reaction to God's invitation of salvation to the Jewish nation over the generations. Remember the nation of Israel. It began with a man named Abram, who goes on to become Abraham, clear back in Genesis chapter 12. And the Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to, there in Matthew 22, they are a part of the heritage, they are a part of the lineage of Abraham. As a matter of fact, they refer to themselves as children, sons and daughters of Abraham. So clear back there in Genesis 12, God calls Abram, who later becomes Abraham, to leave his dwelling place there in Ur of the Chaldeans and go to a place that God would show them. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse two, God speaks to Abram and God kind of lays out his vision, his plans, his purpose for what he wanted to do upon the earth through this one man, Abram. He says, I will make you a great nation. This is his promise to Abram. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so you shall be a blessing. 
So back there in Genesis 12, God is looking to create a nation, a people, whom he could bless exceedingly. And he begins the start of this soon to be great nation with one man, Abram, and it just grew from there. Now one of the many blessings that God intended to bestow upon this great nation, which we now call Israel, was the gift of salvation. This gift of salvation would come through the heritage, the lineage of Abraham called the Messiah, and the Messiah would be of the house, the lineage, the heritage of Abraham, and this was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ went to the cross and died, his blood shed as a final, once and for all sacrifice for sin, the gift of salvation, that blessing that was promised back there in Genesis 12 too, uh, was accomplished. And it was accomplished for everyone who believes, first to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles. So all of this references that history there in Matthew 22, 6, where he says, others seized his messengers, insulted them, and killed them. So again, part of the plan and part of the purpose of God's salvation to the Jews was going to culminate in a wedding feast. So he said, you know, here's my plan. I wanna bring forth the gift of salvation. Once the gift of salvation has been accomplished, we are going to plan and we are going to celebrate this salvation. It's just gonna culminate in a huge celebration called a wedding feast. And so Jesus is telling them there, this again, predominantly Jewish crowd in Matthew 22, one through six, he says, God is inviting you to receive this gift of salvation and he's also inviting you to the celebration that will follow this wedding feast. And he says, God is inviting you to this celebration of his son, Messiah Jesus, and the invitation is to attend and he says, those who respond to the call of salvation, who receive the gift of salvation, that's your RSVP into this wedding celebration. The initial invitation, that gift of salvation, Jesus, it goes first to the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And then verse five, in there Jesus says, okay, the invitation's been issued. It's been given to you. There is a gift called salvation. There is a wedding celebration that, that will culminate that gift of salvation. You've been invited. The king has invited you. It's ready to go. All he awaits is your response. And verse five indicates their response, which was often their response when it came to God. But they paid no attention. They went their way. One to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his messengers, mistreated, and killed them. So, so Jesus basically tells them in this parable that, you know what, the history of the Jewish nation has been that you just basically reject over and over and over God's plan and offer of salvation. And, and he says God's brought that uh, through the prophets, but you didn't want to hear them. You seized him, you threw him out, you killed him, you rejected God's message every time it came. 
As I said, the first part of this shocking story has them fuming at Jesus because he's basically saying, look, the invitation's been given, but you people continue to reject it just like your ancestors did. And then the parable continues in verse seven, but the king was enraged and sent his army and destroyed those murderers and set fire on their city. And again, this was a prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70. And so it's just a historical reference there. Verse eight, then the king said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited, the Jewish nation, Jesus just said, this invitation went first to the Jewish nation, you rejected it. So he said, okay, he says, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited, the Jewish nation, they're not worthy, go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and they gathered together all they found. This, again, you gotta understand what Jesus is about to say was so offensive, both evil and good. <sighs> really? Evil and good? Are you serious? We are godly people. We do not tolerate evil. We don't even tolerate slightly evil. And you have the audacity to first of all tell us we've rejected the invitation and you're gonna add insult to injury by now telling us that you're gonna go out now and invite people outside of the Jewish race, good and evil people? Really? Now, you kind of get an idea why their reaction was so strong in verse 15. They knew exactly what he was saying. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Again, make no mistake here. This Jewish audience knew exactly the point Jesus was making here, and it did not set well with them. And they went out there in verse 15 and again and plotted to destroy him. Again, this is Tuesday. He's going to the cross on Friday. I mean, the, the wheels were already in motion. It says, you Jews rejected God's invitation of salvation throughout your history. You killed the prophets. You're about to kill me. You're rejecting God's offer now by plotting to destroy me, the Messiah. So he says, we're simply just gonna go beyond what was intended for the Jewish audience, we're gonna just go beyond and we're gonna offer this invitation that you rejected. We are now going to offer that same invitation to those who are not worthy. See, God wanted to use the nation of Israel as a means of blessing to the rest of the world. God wanted to use them as his primary instrument of blessing to all of the other nations. He wanted to use them to bring forth the word of God, the oracle of God. He wanted them to be the nation, the premier nation, through which God's ultimate gift of salvation would come, the Messiah. And for the most part, the nation of Israel refused to cooperate. There were pockets 
Now you've got the Abraham, you've got Moses, you've got Mary and Joseph. There were pockets of people who came along and cooperated that God was able to use to accomplish all that he wanted to do through the nation of Israel. But for the most part, the nation as a whole rejected, didn't want anything to do with it, wanted to go their own way, do their own thing. However, there were a few individuals that cooperated and that God was able to use. The Apostle Paul was one of them, remember? I mean, he kind of just eventually surrendered. And he kind of comes into cooperation with God's plan of salvation for the world. If you remember, much of Apostle Paul's ministry involved taking that offer, that gift of salvation, which the, new, the Jewish nation rejected, and he just takes it to the Gentiles and offers that gift of salvation to them. This approach gets Paul in about as much trouble as it got Jesus in. The Jews didn't like Paul's taking the gospel of salvation, that gift of salvation that they believed was solely and only for them and and basically, you know, prostituting it, taking their pearls and just casting it before swine. And this is basically, in their eyes, what the Apostle Paul was doing. How dare you take something so precious to the Jewish nation, something that that, that God gave exclusively to us, the Jewish people. How dare you take that and just prostitute that to people who are not worthy. The Jews did not like that. And that's the point Jesus was making in this parable. He said, what was God's gift to you? Part of God's blessing to you, part of what makes you unique as a nation was God's gift of salvation to you. But you rejected it, you ignored it. And so now God is gonna simply extend the boundaries He's gonna extend the invitation now, not just to the Jews, but he's gonna extend that to the Gentiles as well. God was not excluding the Jews from receiving this. It still was available to them. God is just extending that gift of salvation beyond the Jewish nation. It was now available to both Jew and Gentile. And Paul was one of the main spokespersons who went to the Jews and declared God's gift of salvation to them. And it's for this reason, the Apostle Paul would make statements like the one in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 10. He said, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. Now again, this was so offensive to the Jewish people because in their mind, it had everything to do with whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. If you were not a Jew, the only way to get in on the covenant, to to get in on the blessings that God had reserved for the Jewish nation, if you are a Gentile, you must become a Jew. If you are uncircumcised, you must become circumcised. This is what the whole New Testament battle that Paul was engaged in was all about. And here he is kind of laying it out pretty clear. He, He said, in this new life, it doesn't matter What do you mean it doesn't matter? Paul, what are you doing? You're selling out your people. 
You're selling out the Jewish nation. Paul said, it doesn't matter. You rejected it. And God simply took it and expanded it to a wider audience. It says, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave. Paul, it matters, it matters, it matters. Oh, you start telling people it doesn't matter if they're barbaric and uncivilized. My God, what are you going to turn us into? Stop. If you don't stop, we're going to kill you. Just like we did everybody else. Said Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. So God's plan is offer free gift of salvation. Again, Paul's making very, very clear, this is the point Jesus is making. It's no longer exclusively reserved for the Jewish people alone. It is for everyone who believes and receives God's gracious offer of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, for the final phase of this parable, Jesus is telling in Matthew chapter 22, pick it up with verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Again, this is shocking. Ever been told or heard something that is just shocking, jaw-dropping, kind of in a state of disbelief? Here's this man. He's in the wedding feast. The king comes up and says, hey, you're not dressed in the right attire. How in the world did you ever get in here? And the guy's Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. We're going to talk about this next week. We're going to talk about this for the next couple of weeks. Because this was a common refrain in many of Jesus' parables. Matter of fact, parable we're going to get into next week, sheep and the goats. There was a place the sheep went, and we're, we're all well versed on that one. But folks, there's a place where the goats went. And we don't like talking about that. We, we don't like owning that part of the gospel. We're going to own it next week. We're going to own it for a couple of weeks. Because this is a common refrain in Jesus' parables. Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, to better understand this portion of the parable, it would be helpful to know that in Jesus' day, as he's telling this story, it was very, very customary for the wedding guests to be provided the garment they would wear to the wedding celebration. So if you were hosting a wedding back in Jesus' day, I mean, you think you have to buy a lot now for a wedding. Part of what you would provide for the wedding dress was, it's not just making sure the bridesmaids, the groomsmen are all dressed. You also had to provide the attire for every guest you were inviting to that wedding. So anyone who showed up in something other than what was provided for by the host would be seen as an extreme insult to the host. 
So if you just kind of came in dressed in something other than what was given, it was a slap across the face to the one who invited you. The wedding celebration in the parable, it represents, and Jesus is alluding to, this marriage supper of the Lamb. And it will occur following the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's so poignant. It's Tuesday, on Friday, I'm going to the cross, but I wanna remind you, there is a great celebration coming. I'm gonna come back again. And I'm gonna take you to be with me that where I am, you shall be also. And one of the things we're gonna do there is we are going to have a great celebration because of this gift of salvation that you have been given, that you have received. By receiving that gift of salvation, we are gonna have a party. We're gonna have a celebration. And he said, it is the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's referenced there in Revelation 19, beginning in verse seven. And there John writes, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, who's his bride? The church. For the marriage of the lamb has come. He's returned and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her. It's been provided for by the host of this wedding celebration. He says, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And again, the righteous acts of the saints are only possible because of the Holy Spirit who lived and worked in and through them. And he said to me, write, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is what Jesus is referencing them in the parable of the king's invitation. He says, there's coming a time following my death on the cross, following my resurrection, following my ascension to the right hand of the Father, there is coming a time where I am going to come back for the church, my bride. I'm going to take her with me. And when we arrive at that destination together, we are going to have a celebration. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the point Jesus is making there in the parable of Matthew 22 is very clear when it comes to God's plan of salvation, our eternal life, our eternal destiny, our ability to be a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation 19 is that God, our Heavenly Father, has made every provision necessary in securing all of that, the gift of salvation, this invitation, this celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb, all God has made every provision necessary in securing all of that through his son, Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1.3 says, seeing that his divine power has granted, past tense, it's done, it's accomplished, the war is over. The enemy has been defeated. So seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything. Everything includes everything, does it not? Is there anything under everything that is not included? No, everything means just what it says. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's provided it all. He's taken care of it. No more struggling, no more striving, no more worrying, no more fear. Jesus gets into a lot of teaching on that. 
Look at the birds. Consider the lilies of the field. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to worry about. Don't be anxious about anything. I've provided it all. I've taken care of everything for this life, for your godliness. I've taken care of everything in the physical world, the spiritual world. I've, I've taken care of all of it. So you have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about, nothing to be anxious about, nothing to strive for. I've taken care of all of it. I've provided all of it. Will you receive it? He has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Everything required for our redemption, for our salvation, everything for our forgiveness, for our healing has been provided. It's there. All we need to do is receive it by faith. You say it is, and I receive that it is. You say it's mine, I receive it is mine. So we see a reminder of this provision, do we not? In the story I mentioned earlier in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, when the lost son returns, one of the first things the father who represents God in the parable does in verse 22, look at this, said, but his father said to the servants, quick, hurry, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. They are about to have a celebration because the son who was lost is now found. But before the celebration began, the father provides the son with what he needed to wear to the celebration. He didn't say, you go and you find the best clothes you got, put it on and come back. He said, no, 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 I'm gonna provide everything you need. The son didn't do anything to deserve or earn the robe. He simply received what his father so graciously provided. When we receive God's invitation to salvation, do you realize that when that happens, we are clothed in a robe of righteousness? And that robe of righteousness is provided for by our heavenly father by means of the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of his son. When we repent of our sins, when we ask Jesus to forgive us, when we ask him to be Lord and Savior of our lives, do you realize part of what you receive is a robe of righteousness by your heavenly Father? And it is put on us to replace our robes of unrighteousness. And just as Paul said there in the verse I shared with you earlier in Colossians 3, 10, put on your new nature. Put it on. It's been provided for. It's there. Through the broken body, the shed blood of Christ, everything you need in life and godliness has been provided. Put it on. Don't go out and strive to find it, to do it, to obey, and to come under a whole list of rules and regulations. He doesn't say that. He just says in regards to this new nature that has been provided to you by your heavenly Father, put it on. 
This new nature, it's the new creation you are in Christ Jesus. The old nature has passed away. Behold, the new creation has come. Put it on. The man in Jesus' parable represented someone who tried to enter the wedding celebration in something other than what was provided for by the wedding host. By the same token, if we attempt to acquire salvation, forgiveness, God's mercy, his kindness, and enter into heaven, enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb by means of something other than through the saving, redeeming work of Jesus Christ through the cross, we will find ourselves falling woefully short and unable to enter. And that's exactly the point Paul's making here in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. God saved you. By his grace, not by your keeping all the rules perfectly. We tried that in the Old Testament. It didn't work. We're going to go with a new plan, God's grace. And he said, you're saved by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's our human nature to want to take credit for all the good stuff in our lives and blame God for all the bad stuff. She said, you know what, we're just gonna cut you guys completely out. You had nothing to do with this. All of this was done by your heavenly Father. It's by his grace you are saved, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Same gift that God offered to the Jews. Same gift Paul offered to the Gentiles. You can't earn this. It's a free gift of God. And you receive salvation when you believe. Eh, It's not about me. It's not anything I have to do. I just have to receive what's already been done through Jesus Christ for myself. When he died, I died. When his blood was shed, my sins were, his blood was applied to my sins. And because his blood was applied to my sins, I am forgiven. I know I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it. That's not the point. The point is he did it because we couldn't. He provided it because we couldn't. We'd be lost without it. Paul, you can't take credit for this. It is the gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Do you realize if you had anything to do with your salvation, you would be going around bragging and boasting to everybody. Look at what I did to get in God's good favor. It's our human nature. So God said, let me just spare you the puffy pride there. I'm just gonna cut you guys completely out. It has nothing to do with you. It's my plan, my grace, my son, his sacrifice, his death, his life, his resurrection, his blood. Nothing to do with you guys. He does all the work, you get all the benefits. So it could be the man in Jesus' parable, this man that the king went and addressed and said, hey, how did you get in here? I don't recognize that clothing. That, That didn't come from me. So it could be the man in this parable was clothed in his own righteousness, self righteousness. He was kind of maybe clothed in his own good works. Look at me, look what I've done, look how I'm dressed. Whatever he was clothed in, it was something that was not provided for 
by the king who had invited him. And the king in the parable immediately recognized that what he was clothed in disqualified him from being there. I'll tell you what, folks, if you're going to try to go to heaven, get into heaven, and do it by your own works, you are going to be disappointed and you will be disqualified. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, I'm, I'm running out of time here. So, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By God's doing, not yours. Notice again, you're completely cut out of this equation. It is by God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus. Who became, again, past tense, it's not that he's one day going to become that for us, he is that now. He became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's what you're clothed in. Put it on. Put it on. Put it on. It's there. It's been provided. It's available. But Jesus said, are you, are, are you going to be like the Jews in that parable, in that story, in that time, in that setting that just reject it, said we're too, we're too busy, we've got too many other things to do. We're going to go here and do this. We're going to go there and do that. And again, they just avoid, evade, don't receive, don't accept. Jesus said, you know, we've done that, been down that road. We're now extending that to the Gentiles. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. It's God's initiative. It's just made available to us. Put it on. So Jesus sends a parable in verse 14 saying, for many are called, but few are chosen. I looked all over in commentaries because it kind of dawned on me, a lot of people use this for context for saying that, you know, God chooses some people for eternal salvation and then God chooses some for eternal damnation. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't buy into that. I just don't think there's much scriptural support from that. But oftentimes they'll go to this. See, few are chosen. So there are people that are chosen. I think in the context of the parable, at least if I'm understanding the parable correctly, and elders, correct me if I'm not, but I, if I understand the parable correctly, I mean, he's talking about two groups of people here. And I've kind of broken it down in that way. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. And basically, that was always kind of Paul's breakdown too, either you're a Jew or a Gentile. And so what I kind of find Jesus saying in the context of this, for many are called, the Gentiles, we're called. He said that the Jewish nation, now they're chosen. They were God's chosen people. So he said, many are called the Gentiles, few are chosen the Jews. You take the many and the few and you put it together and you kind of got the whole world, don't you? And that's what Jesus said, for God so loved the whole world. The many who were called the Gentiles, the few who were chosen the Jews, God loved them all. And the plan for all of them was, was that those who believe in him will not perish but receive everlasting life. Life. Now to me, that makes more sense because oftentimes I will find this scripture kind of lifted up out of the context and then people kind of use that to make a point, oftentimes other than the point I think Jesus was trying to make there. As I read that line, because it does seem kind of awkward, and you know, I mean, I've kind of wrestled with that. What does he mean by that? that? That for many are called, but few are chosen. Is he saying that for the many that are called, a few of those that are called are chosen? I don't think so. I think he's saying for many are called the Gentiles. We've been called. We've been given that invitation. It's been extended to us. 
And he, and he said, and a few, there, there are more Gentiles in the world than there are Jews. So that would make sense to me that the many are called and the few are chosen. But altogether, the invitation has gone out to everyone. This gift of salvation. I mean, this, this culmination, this celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb when Jesus, the bridegroom, comes to take his church. We are going to celebrate. And he said that invitation of salvation, that invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, it, it's out there. It's ready. The war is over. The work is done. Put it on. Put it on. Put it on. God has provided everything for life and for godliness. There's no greater example of that or reminder of that. The, to me, the broken body is that provision for life. It's healing from physical disease. It's healing from emotional scars. It is healing from mental anguish. That, that's, that's the life part of that. God has come to take our brokenness upon himself. That's why his body was broken. He's taking your sin, my sin, your sickness, my sickness, our disease, our unrighteousness. He's taken all of that upon himself, and it represents his broken body. That's life. And the shed blood of Christ, that's the spiritual aspect of that. That's forgiveness. That's why he said when he took the cup, and he lifted it up, and he gave thanks to God. And he said, drink from this, all of you, for this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. That's the godliness aspect of that. And so this morning, I just want you to know, it's all been provided. So whatever you're striving to try to do to add to that, to earn it, to make yourself worthy, I'm just saying, you don't need to do that. It's not necessary. It's all been provided. It's all been taken care of. What Jesus did is all sufficient for everyone. You just receive it by faith. You put it on. He has become for you wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Put it on. Walk in it. Receive it. And I think that's part of what we're doing when we receive the body and the blood of Christ. We're just receiving it. Knowing it wasn't our body, it's not our blood. We're just receiving the benefits of what Jesus did for us because he loves us so much. And, and he wants us to be a part. He wants us to accept this invitation of salvation. He wants us to be a part of this celebration that John talked about there in Revelation 19. Have you received the gift of salvation? Have you received the invitation of the king to this celebration? Are you ready? Are you clothed? Are you walking in your righteousness? Or are you walking in the righteousness that God has provided for us through his son, Jesus Christ? That's why he went to the cross. He knew that you were unrighteous. And through his death, his resurrection, he would become our righteousness. Put it on. If you've not ever done that this morning, this morning is a great opportunity to do it. Don't be like the people in Jesus' parable that walked away, that were too busy, had other things to do, places to go, people to see. Don't reject it. Because Jesus said there's a consequence. We're gonna get into that next week. 
There is, a, there is eternity. Every one of you are eternal beings. And every one of you will spend eternity somewhere. And it all hinges on your response to the invitation. Let's stand. Father, we just thank you this morning. We thank you, Father, that you so loved the world. And Father, you saw the condition of the world full of sin, full of unrighteous people, people who were lost in their sins. And God, out of that great love with which you loved us, you sent your one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to become sin for us in that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Father, that's, that's the, the magnitude of your love. It's a love we can't even comprehend. Who would, who would do such a thing? So loved the world that he sent, he gave his one and only begotten son that whosoever believes will not be condemned but will receive eternal life. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that on our own, in our own works, our own righteousness, on our own merit, left to our own plans, God, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just inherit condemnation. But yet, God, because of your great love, you provided a way for us through your son, Jesus Christ, to have that wisdom from God, to have that righteousness, that sanctification, to have that redemption that was provided for us. And Father, this morning, we just want to put it on. We want to receive it by faith. So Father, this morning, I just pray if there are any here this morning who have rejected that invitation, who maybe find themselves too busy, too preoccupied, too distracted by the things of the world, that God, this morning, you would just grab their attention by your Holy Spirit, that God, you would begin to reveal and to lavish on them, Father, your great love. Father, that you would begin to lavish upon them your great kindness. For Paul said, it is your kindness, it is your goodness that leads to repentance. Oh God, may we taste of your goodness and your kindness this morning. So Father, I just pray, Lord, for any hearts out there this morning that have not received that invitation, God, that you would just open their heart, open their spirit this morning, God, that they would just reach out by faith and just put it on this morning, Father. We just thank you for that. Father, as we uh, just end this time in worship, as we end this time in communion, Father, as we just come this morning and again to receive the broken body, and through that, Lord, we find healing. As we receive the shed blood, through that we find forgiveness, Father. We just thank you, Lord, that you have provided all that we need for life and for godliness. And Father, we just take this moment to recognize, to give thanks to you. Father, to lay down any anxiety, any worry, any striving, God, that we've done to try to provide it for ourselves, God, and just to receive it from you, Father. We thank you for that. We just thank you for this opportunity once again, Father, to just taste of your goodness. Once again, Father, just to recognize 
your unconditional love for us, this world, as we receive the greatest gift that ever could be given as Jesus laid down his life for us. We just thank you for that. Help us to do this, God, in a way that is worthy of you, that respects, that God just again is in awe of you for your provisions for us. We just thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we partake of communion this morning, again, we always tell you that this really is, this is a foretaste of the feast that is to come. I grew up Lutheran, and that's part of that one part of the liturgy I always remember. Um, this is the feast of victory, uh, and, and this is a foretaste of what is to come in that marriage supper of the Lamb. This is kind of a dress rehearsal. This is just preparing us. This is just giving us a taste of what is to come. So if you're a believer here this morning, we invite you to come and to celebrate and to share in that. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, let me be really clear, this is not for you. You need to receive the gift. You need to receive the invitation and then come and celebrate. So if you're here this morning and you've never ever invited Jesus to be Lord of your life, you've never ever asked him to forgive you of your sins, you've never come to that place of true repentance, uh, Jim is going to be up here this morning. I would ask Tom and Pam if you guys would be here this morning. Um, just, I'll be here. We want to pray with you this morning. If you do not know Jesus, we want you to be able to pray to receive him. And, and we'll do that with you this morning. So as you come this morning, as we uh, again end our service and worship, celebration of communion, if you need to just receive Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior of your life, we'll be here this morning. We want to pray with you this morning. Um, so we just invite you, uh, however God is leading you this morning, just to come and to be a part of whatever God is doing in your heart and your life this morning.